Hi, Elise Lunen here, co-host with Gwyneth of the Goop podcast. Today's guest is Ingrid Fatal lee But before we get to my conversation with her, I want to give a quick shout out to our friends at Chase Sapphire, who we partnered up with to bring you today's episode. When I'm not in the Goop office, I might be flying back and forth to New York City, San Francisco, Boston, Seattle to interview the guests you hear on the show every week. I love getting to sit down with these incredible people and much prefer having a face-to-face conversation. And traveling has its pros and cons. With the Chase Sapphire Reserve Card, there are some pretty sweet perks, though. You can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide, and an even better bonus is that those points are worth 50% more when you redeem them for travel through Chase. So maybe you'll go for that hotel upgrade, or spring for some more legroom, or extend your next road trip through the weekend. And if you're in need of some travel tips and inspo heading into the holiday season, just go to goop.com and check out the holiday travel guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire. Don't hold anything too tightly. Just wish for it, want it, let it come from the intention of real truth for you, and then let it go. For me, our soul is like, it's unbound, it's limitless, but we will use words to limit ourselves. When people stop believing that somebody's got your back or Superman's coming, we turn to ourselves, and that's where you become empowered. Courageous participation attracts positive things. I'm Gwyneth Paltrow. This is the Goop Podcast, bringing together thought leaders, culture changers, creatives, founders and CEOs, scientists, doctors, healers and seekers, here to start conversations, because simply asking questions and listening has the power to change the way we see the world. Today is no exception. I'll let Elise fill you in on her extraordinary guest, and I'll come back after their conversation to answer a question from one of you. If you have a question you'd like me to get into in our next round of Ask Me Anything, send it to us at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. All right, over to Elise. Ingrid Fatel lee is a designer and the founder of a blog called The Aesthetics of Joy. She's also the author of Joyful. Today, we talk about what brings us joy. Ingrid teaches us how we can tap back into the joyful feelings we often leave behind when we exit childhood. She explains the impact of color and design on our mood and how simple things can completely transform any experience. We also talk about how joy is vulnerable, why it can be hard to let go and truly be in a joyful spirit. Ingrid teaches us how to reconnect and that it starts with paying attention. I'll let her take it from there. So something happens when the space feels more alive, our trust in others increases. It changes the way we behave. And I think that's how something as simple and seemingly superficial as color can start to make much more substantive changes within a city. Okay, let's get to my chat with Ingrid Fatale. First of all, your book is so impeccably researched. Did you spend, the? you don't have to actually answer this question, but I am curious if you spent your entire advance traveling <laughs> around the world, talking to people. <laughs> I you know most people just phone in their books, right? It was really important <laughs> to me as someone who was studying places and aesthetic experience to go to yeah. some of these places. Yeah, and experience them in person. And some of the reality of having a book that you've been working on slowly for 10 years is that a lot of those trips happened over the course of, you know, I was working a full-time job and I was going for, you know, three-day weekend or I was going, I tacked something onto a work trip or so I definitely didn't do all of the research packed into the... Exactly. Yeah. Not to say I didn't do some, but a lot of the trips actually happened while I was working full-time. But it is remarkable and comes from such a place of curiosity, and that comes through. It's also deeply fascinating. I think you can look at a book about joy, and I think the first instinct could be, oh, that's like a silly emotion, which I know is sort of actually the thesis of the book, how essential and important it is. But then the book itself has so much heft for something that is also joyful. But I feel like, and this comes up at 
multiple points throughout the book. I'm going to read you. I'm going to pick my favorite discussion of this. But essentially, you're talking about how joy and the rise of sort of modernism and minimalism has been pushed to the edges of our worlds and dismissed. And I think you were talking, you're at the Greenbrier, which Dorothy Draper designed and talking about it. And you write, minimalism often tries to claim a moral high ground, dismissing aesthetics of abundance as wanton excess. Freedom from ornament is a sign of spiritual strength, declared Austrian architect Adolf Luce in a 1910 lecture whose title, Ornament and Crime, speaks for itself. Just like the modernist rejection of color, this drive for purity was billed as a route to a more enlightened civilization, but underneath it lay a barely concealed ethnic and racial prejudice, loose heaped disdain on peoples he considered unsophisticated, the Kafir, the Persian, the Slavic peasant woman, who couldn't help but indulge in decoration in their homes and dress. And that it's become, you write, choosing simple unadorned goods has become a badge of righteousness, like being thin or having good hygiene. It's so true and so important. Like that, there were many sort of moments of that throughout the book that somehow like expressing a love for color, abundance, somehow bears with it a badge of not having good taste or being base or not knowing any better. So where do, do you think that this is just like the layering on of, of um, cultural sort of judgment? Over time? I think there's a definitely a cultural bias in the West mm-hmm. that equates joy with childishness and and equates joy with primitiveness. And and I think those two things are related. So when you look at Western cultures, there's often a a like a root in that the repression of emotion is a sign of sophistication or maturity or or adultness, right? Mm -hmm. And so I think during the colonial period, that became a real point of differentiation, that you would go to places like India and there's color everywhere, and and you go to, uh, for example, island nations, Caribbean island nations, and there's a lot of dancing and there's a lot of visual and physical expression of emotions. And... One of the ways to keep that, to draw a distinction, one of the ways that Western colonists chose to draw that distinction was to say that those expressions of emotion were primitive and that they were not mature. They were not sort of the full realization of, of what you know, man could become if man embraced his rationality and his, um, you know, higher order virtues. And so these two things got conflated. And so when you look at um, aesthetic choices, they are deeply connected to the emotional expression that is underneath them. But we don't often see that in daily life. We just see this sense that there's a kind of judgment when we choose something that looks maybe a little bit girly or a little bit lighthearted in a way, silly, when we choose something that's very vibrant or ornamented. Uh, there's often that, that judgment, but we don't think about where that comes from. Totally. And I've certainly felt that in my own life and when I look at my own wardrobe, it is not joyful, Ingrid. It's, but it's, you know, I own a few sort of wacky things, but for the most part, it is a monochrome uniform of convenience. But I, it wasn't always that way. And it actually, this book made me really sad, a little mournful and sad that I, and I don't know if it's a preference or if it's a shame thing or if it's just wanting to make aesthetic choices that fly under the radar because I don't want to be, I don't know. But it, it, it's definitely true. Well, I didn't want to make you sad. <laughs> <laughs> but I think that I certainly went through a period of that where mm-hmm. I was, in my case, I was hoping for a promotion at work. Mm-hmm. I was working a full-time job and and I wanted to look more sophisticated. And so I started taking the color out of my wardrobe. Mm-hmm. And bit by bit, I started wearing more and more black and more and more things that, you know, these outfits that they coordinated really easily, they were really interchangeable, so there was a real convenience aspect to it. But 
over time, I noticed that when I put them on, I didn't feel as vibrant. I felt maybe like a more muted version of myself, more toned down. Mm -hmm. And as I started adding color back into my wardrobe, and not just color, but, you know, sparkle, things like I have a pair of glitter-covered shoes. And just having them, even if I just wear them to the grocery store, right, they give me this feeling of joy. Wearing those things made me feel like I would look in the mirror and I would notice the, the expression on my face. Mm. And when I would wear black, I would have this serious kind of, you know, the expressions models make. Totally. <laughs> Which don't really work on normal people. <laughs> you just look like you're a resting bitch face. Exactly. And then I would put on something colorful and I would look in the mirror and I would smile because I would see myself. And that brought me joy. And I thought, that's how I want to go out every day. I want to go out into the world like this smiling version of myself because that's how I really feel like I am inside. Mm -hmm. And yeah, it took some time, but I just started here and there picking more colorful things. So it's not to say that I think, you know, anyone should feel the opposite, any sort of like judgment the other way on their wardrobe, but more it's, I think, a prompt to say when you put on your clothes, you know, how do you feel? And if right. you want to feel like that more joyful version of yourself, there are ways to to go about that. Right. And if you've shut yourself down because of fear of not having good taste, then who cares, right? Totally. Yeah. I mean, I think that that is one of the things, one of the saddest things that I encountered while researching this book, which was that we all have a natural compass inside of us that tells us what kinds of things will bring us joy in the world around us. But because we've been conditioned to believe that there's a, a, such a thing as good taste and that we have to follow it and that there are certain people who are arbiters of good taste, we tune out that compass. Mm -hmm. And what I hope is just to help people recognize that your emotions are an indicator of what makes you feel good and choosing more of those things based on what makes you feel good as opposed to what someone else says is good mm -hmm. um, can be a way to meaningfully influence your well-being. And you, throughout the book, sort of bring it back to how unnatural it is for us to live the way that we live or that nature has uses joy, abundance, layering, magic, hide and reveal all these tactics, right? These are survival tactics that when we're living in concert or living in a more connected way with who we really are, they're survival skills. Right. I mean, we our ancestors didn't go to work every day in gray and beige office buildings mm -hmm. that have hard right angles everywhere and jangly noises and harsh glare-filled reflections. They spent most of their days surrounded by nature, by trees, by which have fractal patterns embedded in them mm -hmm. that we don't even consciously see, but our, our senses are aware of, that have soothing sounds, sounds that our brains have evolved to find soothing, such as birdsong and mm -hmm. um, the noises of, of life, right? They have color and they have abundance, as you point out, and our innate predilection for these kinds of sensations. And it can be natural settings, but it can also be some of those things replicated in a man-made environment. For example, symmetry is something mm -hmm. that we can bring in from the natural environment into a man-made environment, and it provides a very soothing effect. Or abundance, we can gain that not necessarily from having a lot of stuff, but actually from surface treatments like polka dots and stripes mm -hmm. and things like that, or layering of different textiles and textures. When we have those things around us, it makes us feel good because it, it reminds us that we're in a place that is safe, that has the ingredients necessary to sustain life. Right. And that in sensory deprivation, sort of we go crazy and we die. Right. I mean, essentially. Essentially, yeah. yeah. I mean, sensory deprivation, I think, is very in fashion right now because we are so overstimulated by our devices and by, you know, urban living can often be overstimulating. But it's overstimulating with negative sensations. Mm -hmm. um, in a natural environment, we have a, a, a baseline level of stimulation that feels good to us. And, and I think many 
interior environments are understimulating as opposed to overstimulating. Yeah. It also, I love sort of the, the research throughout the book about how curative the introduction of these elements of joy can be, whether it's the painting of cities and towns into sort of technicolored worlds and how that translates to reduce crime and rejuvenation or jails or schools. I think that, you know, this idea that a, a mural intervention can sort of transform an entire city is so fascinating and powerful. And is that, what do you think is, is at play there? Is it the investment of time? Is it, the, is it just the pure power of color and, and the unexpectedness of it? So the story that really got me wondering about the power of color was when I heard that in 2000, the city of Tirana, Albania, which was really riddled with corruption and had been in a steady state of decline for about 10 years since the fall of communism. They elected a new mayor named Eddie Rama, who was an artist by training. And Rama didn't have much money to work with, but what little money he had, he applied towards painting vibrant designs on all of the downtown buildings. And it was so interesting to me because these weren't just public buildings. They were private buildings, too. I mean, imagine being a landlord in Toronto and you come out one day and the mayor is painting like red and blue stripes all over the front of your building. And this painting project, I think, to a lot of people could have seemed like a folly. And I think often we dismiss these kinds of interventions as decorative right. and not really getting at the heart of problems. What happened in the wake of this is that people stopped littering in the streets, that happened almost immediately. And then shopkeepers started to remove their the, the metal grates from their shop front windows because they said that the streets felt safer, even though there were no more police on the streets than before. And then crime actually did start to fall. And then people started to pay their municipal taxes. And so with the increased revenue, he was able to plant trees and clean up the city parks. And five years after this began, the number of businesses in Toronto had tripled. And the tax revenue had increased by a factor of six. And so when you look at those changes, there are substantive changes. And there is, of course, a snowball effect, right, of some of these changes led to the ability, the revenue to make more changes. But I think what happens when you put color, for example, into a space is that it feels more alive. Mm -hmm. And it feels like certainly someone cares about it. The people in the space feel like they have a sense of dignity. There are studies that show that people working in more colorful environments are more alert, confident, and friendly than people in drab spaces. And there's a recent study out of Vancouver, which I think starts to explain this a little bit better. They, In this study, they took people to different spots around a city, and they they had them stand next to a, a plain old crosswalk and then a rainbow crosswalk. And they asked them the question, if you dropped your wallet right here, how likely would you be to, to think that it would come back to you, that someone would return it to you? And people were much more likely to believe that their wallet would be returned to them when they were standing next to the rainbow crosswalk. So something happens when the space feels more alive, our trust in others increases. It changes the way we behave. And I think that's how something as simple and seemingly superficial as color can start to make much more substantive changes within a city. We'll get back to Ingrid Fatale-Lee in just a second. If you feel like you're overdue for a family vacation or a dinner out with your best friends, I feel you. If you're looking for any incentive to pull the trigger, there's always Chase Sapphire Reserve. With this card, you can earn three times the points on travel and dining worldwide. And when you're on the road or on vacation or eating out, this all adds up, as you know. So might as well get rewarded for it, right? The other big perk of the Sapphire card is that you receive up to $300 in statement credits annually as reimbursements for travel purchases charged to your card. So maybe you'll try out that new dinner spot with your friends, or finally take a day off and get out of Dodge, or maybe it's just a scenic train ride to work for you. It all adds up into more rewards with Chase Sapphire Reserve. And if you happen to be in need of some travel tips leading into the holiday season, head to goop.com, 
Once you're there, check out the holiday travel guide that we collaborated on with Chase Sapphire Reserve. At Goop, we have many, many, many conversations about food. And we just completed our brand new test kitchen, where our food editors get to develop their recipes. Everything from healthy soups to salads to cocktails to desserts. They clearly make a lot from scratch, but they also appreciate a good snack that's ready to go. And skinny dipped almonds are pretty ideal. They start with crunchy roasted almonds and a little organic maple sugar and sea salt, and then dip them in a thin layer of rich chocolate. They avoid artificial flavors, colors, and sugar alternatives. They're gluten-free, non-GMO, and delicious. Skinny dipped almonds come in a variety of flavors like cocoa, mint, espresso, raspberry, and peanut butter. Our food editors debate over whether the cocoa or espresso is the best, but I don't think you can really go wrong. Visit skinnydip.com to learn more, and you can get 20% off your next purchase using code GOOP20. That's G-O-O-P-2-0. Back to my chat with Ingrid Fatale lee Will you also tell the story of the jail and the tiles? Because I loved that anecdote. Yes, this is a designer named Hilary Dalk who works with color in London, and she does a lot of work in the healthcare system and in prisons. And in this particular case, she was asked to do the tile, design the tile for the women's showers in a, in a women's correctional facility. And she picked out the tiles. She thought they wanted just plain white. And she said, let's just do a stripe. One stripe, it has, you know, one band of sort of terracotta colored tiles and then, a, you know, a lighter pink below it in the middle. And six months later, after the project was implemented, she was asked to come back and look at the showers. And they were the, the staff at the facility were so excited to show her the showers. And she walked in and she said, well, they look exactly as they did when we designed them. <laughs> Why are you so excited? And they said, no, you don't understand. Normally, the tiles in the showers are smashed because people use them for self-harm attempts. And none of the tiles were smashed. Mm. And that's what they were so excited about. And so it's color, but it's also, you know, the introduction of one line can define a space and take it from a bleak and blank expanse into something that has a sense of order mm -hmm. um, that makes us feel more grounded and more cared for. Right. No, I loved I loved that example and, and the importance of light in those contexts, too. I think you talk about a study that increasing exposure to daylight reduces blood pressure and improves mood, alertness, and productivity. Students in classrooms with the most daylight advance as much as 26% faster in reading and 20% faster in math over the course of a year. That's staggering. I mean, that sort of calls for like a massive reorientation of all of our spaces. I think so. And I think if there's anything that surprised me in researching this book, it's how robust the research is on light mm -hmm. and the way that it affects us. I mean, there's it's pretty magical almost how how powerful simple sunlight is in terms of our well-being. I mean, there's studies that show that workers with sunnier desks sleep 46 minutes more per night. Wow. than people sitting in, in more dimly lit spaces. And it's because light regulates our circadian rhythm. It controls the regulation of a lot of our genes. It has a huge effect on our immune system. It regulates serotonin, which is the one of the neurotransmitters involved in mood. That's why at the end of the summer, people tend to have high, the highest levels of serotonin, especially in the northern hemisphere. And so... I think absolutely most of the spaces that we spend mo most of our time are too dim. And in America, we spend 87% of our time indoors. On mm. average, you spend 87% of your time indoors and another 6% in cars. So the vast majority of the time that we're awake is spent without as much light as we, we are naturally evolved to, to experience to properly regulate those rhythms. Yeah, it's in, and it's it's wild that there's so much 
research, and obviously people, I think, are becoming wise, the importance of vitamin D, and are we putting too much sunscreen on ourselves when we are outside, and sort of the way vitamin D acts as a hormone, and that whole interplay, but it feels too like a lot of this research, like it, the things get siloed. Like, I think your book is so important, too, because it's it's obviously comes from a design point of view, and you're an IDEO person, and you're interested in the aesthetics of it, but then the 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 ripple effect of it is so tied to health. So it's like, how do these things all collate and come together? Well, I, I think this is what has been overlooked for so long because we've had this mind-body divide, mm-hmm. which we can thank Descartes for, and it's been with us for, for generations. When we've had a, a physical problem, right, or a, a health issue, we tend to think about internal remedies. We tend to think about the body. We don't think about the environment and the way that the environment might be affecting the emotions, which then might be affecting the body, that those things are all connected. And so to me, what I think the the hope is, is that we can start to create environments intentionally that contribute to our thriving, that Mm -hmm. aren't sapping our energy, but actually are giving us energy. So for example, I know Philips is working on a lighting system that can give people the equivalent of a cup of coffee in terms of an energy boost Mm. in the afternoon when you need it most. And so we can actually use the environment to start to give ourselves energy when we need it to, you know, regulate these rhythms to make us feel calm and at ease so that we're, we're not, you know, feeling so stressed out and on edge all the time to battle burnout. I think there are a lot of things we can do with the physical environment. Right. No, it's true. And you you start the book, I think the first chapter is about energy, right? And this idea of whether it's sound or color or the, the way that we perceive our environment. And I think it is so subtle, sensorial, like impossible to measure, but it clearly affects us. It just can't be perceived in the way that we would like it to be perceived or measured. I think we're starting to be able to perceive it and Mm -hmm. measure it. But it's true. I think what's challenging about the environment is that there are so many factors at once, right? Um, So it's hard to control for that. But there are labs that are starting to try to do that research and Mm -hmm. give us a better sense of, of what the specific effects are when we change certain variables in our environment. I mean, for example, we know that um, exposure to nature is incredibly powerful, that it can reduce the tendency to ruminate and brood over problems, that it can increase, that it can restore our attention and our ability to concentrate and focus, that it can reduce irritability, all of those things. And that bringing plants in, while not as good as being able to take a walk in the park can bring many of those benefits into mm-hmm. our interior spaces in ways that are measurable, that you know, we can actually experience a measurable re- reduction in blood pressure when we're exposed to indoor plants and that we can experience a measurable increase in productivity in those situations as well. Yeah, it's interesting too how many of the things that you write about in the book, whether it's the jail or schools too, it's 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 in community, right? Because I think we're also so sensitive to each other's energy and those things can be contagious. And so you think about a shower intervention, right? And a line of terracotta tile. And like, not only did it dissuade maybe one person from trying to inflict harm, but it it influenced an entire prison population. So you have to like also on like, what is the resonance of that group and like what's happening collectively that would discourage them? Like how contagious is the behavior, like both positively and negatively? We know that emotions are highly contagious and that positive emotions are even more contagious than negative emotions, which is the good thing, the good news. And so I think it's a really good point that what we change in a space can influence not just one person or a few people, it, it can influence a lot of people. And I think the through these ripple effects, that mm-hmm. small things that influence one person can ripple out to affect many people. For example, when salespeople 
exhibit joy, the bigger their smile, the more likely people are to give higher customer satisfaction ratings, to spend longer browsing in the store, and to come back for a repeat visit. So we know that these effects have Mm -hmm. larger ripple effects. Don't people say, like, joy is infectious, infectious joy? And I think that that's evolutionary. Yeah. Because it's helpful in a population or in a community for people to synchronize and resonate to each other's emotional state. Um, When something negative happens, it's helpful for fear to spread so that everyone is on the alert Mm -hmm. and for it to do that relatively quickly and unconsciously. And the same thing in times of joy. To bring everyone onto the same page has the effect of being able to diffuse tensions, right, within a group. When we celebrate, for example, celebration is probably the most contagious and infectious mm-hmm. form of joy. It's a, it's a moment when things are going really well, and so you want to share and spread that joy and bring everyone into the fold. And that can really help. Certainly we see it in animal populations. There are a few animals that celebrate, not many, um, but <laughs> elephants celebrate, chimps celebrate. And one of the things that happens is that hierarchy diffuses among chimps. When they celebrate, you see lots of friendly body contact, lots of kissing and hooting and hollering. And when they sit down to eat after such a celebration, they're much less hierarchical. And every animal, even the lowest on the hierarchy, gets something to eat. And so we know that celebration and this infectious joy can play a really powerful role in creating harmony Mm -hmm. within communities of people. What do you think, it's funny, like celebration play, which I know is a is a part of the book, color. And I feel like, you know, you, you talk about this as we sort of grow out of these stages, right? Like we shed this, we, we don't get on the floor and play. I have sort of a, almost an aversion to some of it. Like I'm like, oh, birthday party. Oh. And then I, it's like a succumbing. Like what do you, what's the aversion from? Do you think that that's cultural or do you think that like we're stuck? Does that make sense? Like that there's sort of this like, it's so hard to transition from a place of seriousness and fatigue to like party hats and pinatas. I think one of the challenges is that we've been made to feel like those are two opposite things, Mm -hmm. that those things are opposed to each other, that work and play can't coincide. And we feel as we grow up that to be serious, we have to put that aside. We have to put silliness aside. We have to contain our emotions. We can't be as joyful or exuberant as we are as children. And so it's that cultural bias certainly Mm -hmm. influences us. I think the longer that we hold that divide within ourselves, the more rigid it becomes. Mm -hmm. And the harder it is to find that fluidity between the two. Now, it's not to say that there are times when fun feels forced mm-hmm. and it's not joyful. Right. It's just being done for the sake of doing it. And so that can be hard, I think, to when you encounter that, sometimes it, it casts a negative light on more right. authentically joyful experiences. An example would be like forced fun at work when you feel like you have to, you know, do, do some the Halloween sort of, party and wear or a some sort of brainstorming exercise <laughs> that's you know done in a room that's full of beanbag chairs and it has it's like you're you know you're you feel like you're forced to play. I mean, the thing about joy is it's vulnerable mm-hmm. and it does make us vulnerable. Play is especially vulnerable, and if we didn't grow up playing or we didn't because we had very rigid rules around it, or there's some sort of trauma there, it can be really hard to let go and sort of get into that joyful spirit. And so it can take some time to reconnect with that. The wait is over. That's right. Season five of The Kardashians is here. Just when you thought life couldn't get any faster, they're punching it into overdrive. Chris, Courtney, Kim, Chloe, Kendall, and Kylie are back and continue to defy expectations in all their endeavors. So get ready to go behind the glitz and glamour of the most iconic family on television. The all new season of The Kardashians premieres May 23rd, streaming on Hulu. Where do you, and I love that there's the toolkit, and, but what's, for the people who feel like they've just lost it, right? Like they don't have a, they've lost the thread. Where do you think 
the best place to start is? I always suggest starting with your body and starting to notice when you feel the feeling of joy. So when you notice yourself smiling, really smiling, when you notice yourself laughing, when you notice yourself saying, wow, or just having a moment of lightness in your body, capture that moment and just start to notice who you're with Mm -hmm. and what's around you. Where are you? What's happening? Are you in front of a beautiful sunset and you just feel something unlock within you? I think if I asked you or anyone what anxiety feels like in your body, it would be really easy to to say, right? We all know that feeling and it may be a little bit different for each of us, the feeling of butterflies in the stomach or sweaty palms or joy has a feeling in the body too. And we forget that a lot Mm -hmm. of the time. And I think Connecting to that somatic experience, that embodied experience of our emotions, especially our positive emotions, can be one of the most powerful ways to catch ourselves feeling joy more often. Mm -hmm. And when I do this in workshops, people tell me, oh, I just realized I feel this several times a day Mm -hmm. and I hadn't noticed. And now I can notice it. And so to me, that is one of the simplest ways to start to reconnect with that. And then from there, does it does it typically snowball for people? I think so. I think what is powerful about the exercise is once you start noticing what it feels like inside, then and you start noticing what brings about joy, you can start to create those moments more often. So we often think about joy as something we just have to find, and mm-hmm. we stumble across it when if we're lucky, we stumble across these moments. But if you know that certain people or certain settings bring out this feeling of joy, certain activities bring out this feeling of joy, then you can redesign your life to make those things a priority. Yeah, if you notice that on a detour home from your commute, you happen to catch sight of something that lifts your spirits, you can take the long way right. a couple more times a week. Or if you, you know, it, I think it... it Often it unlocks lots of, you know, things in memory that can bring up new ways to to bring joy out. Yeah, and I guess for those who are chromophobic, there's, you know, you suggest many other alternatives like like abundance or texture or plants or their ways. I, too, gravitate, like, to the white bedroom, but plants... (laughs) Yeah, it's not one size fits all. Of course, there's a lot about color because I think that's something that is so readily and naturally associated with joy, Mm -hmm. but it doesn't have to be all about color. I mean, I talk about transcendence, which is all about feelings of elevation and lightness. And of Mm -hmm. course, when you go up to elevation, everything gets lighter in color. And so when you have, you know, that all white bedroom it can feel a little like being in a cloud, which is very joyful. So I think it's all in how you you find the aesthetics that connect with you. And I think it's helpful, too, that you sort of also distinguish, you know, you talked a little bit about harmony, but also distinguishing symmetry, harmony, and why those things are essential, sort of even in the context of something that might be like cacophonous right in its color but that like it can't it needs to be harmonious somehow to your brain totally I'm not saying that everyone should live in a circus (laughs) right Um, having a sense of harmony having a sense of balance and a sense of you know negative space and um, order is what allows the brain to feel safe because it gives us a sense of predictability we can spot things that are potentially awry and that we might need to pay attention to. And so even within abundance, abundance is most joyful when it's symmetrical and ordered. That's when we usually find the greatest joy in abundance. Right. And like the collection of things, whether it's feathers or pencils or plates or pottery, right? Just this idea that there's a world of, you know, like the joy of a a bookshelf, this is always what happens to me when I go to an, an antiques market because antique dealers are really good at the balance of abundance and harmony. And they'll often, you know, for example, old archery arrows or something, they'll have a display of a whole bunch of them. And you'll look at them and they'll look so tempting and you'll buy like three of them and bring them home. And then they just don't 
have the same effect because there's something about the abundance and when they're arranged in a certain way. And so having made that mistake a few times, I started to realize that there is something in that in that balance that yeah. brings joy. The bookshelf is a really good example and I often suggest people try color coding their bookshelves because it's it's color that you have in your house that you often don't realize is color because it's just all mixed up, right? But when you bring those colors together, it doesn't have to be a rainbow, but just bringing a few gradients together, it gives this incredible feeling of harmony. Yeah. No, I long had rainbowed bookshelves, and I did it to my husband's very expansive record collection, which was a little upsetting to him because that's not how he finds his music. But damn, it looked amazing. Uh, <laughs> but it's it's funny, you know, thinking I've I did that. I used to travel all the time when I worked at Lucky Magazine, and I used to write those guides to shopping all over the globe, which was amazing. And we would, you know, it was boutiques, and it was antique malls, and it was flea markets, and I would empty out my suitcase often. I mean, I just bought so compulsively when I would travel, and I think it's exactly for those reasons, you know, and when I would fly or travel throughout my life around the globe, like you go, you're in Africa, and you see all the congas together, and you're like, I need 25 congas, clearly, and then you get home, and you're like, what am I going to do with this fabric, Um, (laughs) or these baskets, or these Maasai bracelets, and it doesn't work. Right, like you come back and you're like, it, you can't transport it, and I think it it is. This makes so much. I'm having an aha moment, but <laughs> it it loses its context, right? Right. I mean, I think there are things we can bring back, but when I think about what to bring back from travel, I always think about how to bring back the aesthetic experience, the uh, the feeling of it, mm-hmm. as opposed to the exact stuff. And so if what I was resonating with in a certain place was the the color and the abundance, then I think, okay, how do I bring that back in? Like I, I'm feeling when I come home that I'm lacking that color and that sensory stimulation, then that is what I'm going to bring into my home. And yeah. maybe it will be some piece of a place that I visited because, you know, for example, I went to Morocco for the first time last year and brought back a few rugs and I'm sure and they, you did. And yeah. those translate, you know, well to the space that I had envisioned. But just understanding that you can bring home the feeling without necessarily having to bring home everything. The everything <laughs> and the exact, you know, material yeah. objects. No, and it makes sense like to think about it in the context of layer or texture or color or like I used to when I would do those guides travel with the same photographer and he would also had some of those tendencies, but they were much more ordered. So he, one thing he would always buy is portraits of George Washington, which I think gave meaning to like the hunt, but he also had the most incredible collection of similar things that then created meaning. Yes. I love that. I love having (laughs) a thing to look for too. Yeah. I have a, a very very tiny collection of pictures of just the ocean and the sky Mm. postcards. It's very hard to find postcards that don't have palm trees or land or anything else, but just the ocean and the sky. And whenever I see one of those, it's very rare. I only have three of them. But whenever I see one, I pick one up because it's such a, it's, it's harmonious and it, it brings me a lot of joy. So yeah, having something like that to look for can be a way to filter that impulse to buy everything and give you something that really, ties together all these different places you've been. Yeah, it's such a great emotional roadmap to to travel and experience and all of Mm -hmm. those sensory pleasures. Oh, this quote, which is now not a total non sequitur, but I love this. Ruth Lance Schumann, the founder of the nonprofit Public Color, which paints New York City school with vibrant hues, puts it this way. I think many of us hide behind an idea of good taste, she said, because we're afraid to really be ourselves. Not to go back to that beginning conversation, but such a good quote. It is. And when she said it, I think, you know, when Ruth started Public Color, which is this organization that goes into public schools in New York City in underserved districts and paints them with vibrant colors, the first reaction she got was, are you crazy? Mm-hmm. You're going to put pink in my schools? You're going to put yellow in my schools? No way. And... Over time, she has won over her critics 
because when public color goes into a school, what the principals find is that graffiti basically disappears, that attendance, both student and teacher attendance improves, and the kids say they feel safer in these schools. And so, again, as in Tirana, these sort of simple interventions, just a few colors painted maybe in a lunchroom or in a hallway, seem to have an effect that envelops the, the school building. Yeah. I also just, I don't think that it is, and, and you do write about this, it's not, I was having this debate with an editor at Goop, because, you know, when we do anything about kids and design, invariably it's like the adults foisting like good design on children and children really truly have terrible taste but it's joyful right it's primary colors it's uh, layered textures and I think about how we now are sort of raising and and sending them to schools that are drab and we are sort of sensorially depriving them too in a way that it's like can they get back to it. Like if you weren't raised in it and you never experienced it, do right. you still connect with it? I mean, there are very few children who are born modernists. I know. What I'll say. <laughs> and I always look at these pictures of like the modernist dollhouse, you know, that's like just like a few planks and, and little holes cut out for windows. And I think, you know, what kids want is generally a more abundant sensibility and that's what they gravitate towards. And so I think it's okay if your taste is more, you know, spare, but as long as they don't feel shamed for right. choosing that, right? And that there's freedom for kids to find and discover their own aesthetic, Yeah, I think is really important. And, and to start to learn that, again, just like, you know, this, that we learn that there's some compass of good taste, that they also learn that there's a a compass within them as well that yeah. can steer them toward the things that feel good to them. And it might be different from what feels good to you. <laughs> so why clearly, like, I mean, you've spent a decade and I'm, I'm sure you're still going and understanding joy and how central it is. Sort of why, how did we get here? And then how do we get back? Like, do you feel hopeful that joy is going to take center stage again? Or do you think people don't even know it's a problem? I think the time we're in now is particularly interesting because we're in a time where there is a seemingly endless stream of dismal news mm -hmm. and people are reaching for joy mm -hmm. because in a world where it's hard to be happy in exactly. the durable sense, right? The, the idea that I'm going to find the happily ever after and everything's just going to be great all the time. It doesn't feel right. It doesn't feel real. But we also recognize that we need these moments of joy in life to be able to withstand all of the stresses that mm -hmm. are coming at us and to make it worth it. And to me, these little moments of joy are the moments that make life worth living. They are these little punctuation marks in our mm -hmm. days, in our weeks, in our lives. And they're the moments that make us feel most truly alive. And so I'm hopeful that we are starting to appreciate that and recognize that. It certainly feels that way to me. I think we have a long way to go in terms of how we bring that into our environment and mm -hmm. recognize that for everyone in spaces where in spaces defined by poverty mm -hmm. in spaces defined by lack and and need um, we often see joy as a luxury right. and i think starting to recognize that it's not a luxury it's an essential quality of the human experience and how we bring that back into the center i think is it's a critical question. Yeah. I think it's such an important distinction to this idea of, you know, and the pressure, right, to be happy and then how attainable it is how to, be, to find these pockets of joy, right? Like it's like we can all find three, four, five sparky moments throughout the course of a day. It's so much more achievable than like this specter of happiness, which I think is 
probably driving us all a little crazy, right? I think so. I think happiness has been framed as work. It's a it's a question of discipline and practices and all sorts of things we have to do. And it's not to say that we shouldn't do a lot of those things. It's not to say that we shouldn't meditate and we shouldn't go to therapy and we shouldn't exercise and do all of those things to take care of ourselves. But to me, there's also a power in allowing mm-hmm. and creating space for things to arise as opposed to, and, and savoring those moments as they come and focusing on simple moments and not having it have to be so hard. Yeah, no, it's true. And that is, you know, the day is made up of, of, mom- of those moments, joy, sadness, anger, all those emotional s- states, right? And it's not, it doesn't really tie together into anything that has a name. And I think that in a lot of ways, success has been framed as leveling all that out. Mm-hmm. And to me, I actually think the richest human experience is allowing ourselves to feel the rise and fall, Mm -hmm. and recognizing that we're not going to feel joyful every minute of the day, but our ability to feel joy exists in proportion to our ability to feel sadness and some of these other emotions. And our job as human beings is is to really feel those things. And that's what opens up the potential for us to feel joy. Thanks for listening to my conversation with Ingrid. For more on her, head to her website, aestheticsofjoy.com. Check out the stories we've done with her at goop.com slash the podcast. And make sure to grab a copy of her book, Joyful. Now, over to GP for today's AMA. This is an interesting question from Catherine who asks, I've always wondered about privacy being in the public eye. How do you trust people with your personal information like doctors, dentists, hairdressers? Is it a constant worry about someone selling your information? Do you ever find yourself withholding when you should probably share? You know, I think when you're in the public eye, of course, there are certain aspects of your life, medical information that you want to keep private, not because it's anything incendiary, but just because, you know, it's important to keep a line between the public self and the private self. I think that's true for anybody. You don't necessarily have to be a famous person. I think we all we all value privacy and that idea that we can, you know, share sensitive information with people that we trust. So yeah, I think I think I've always been a bit guarded in in sharing information. Luckily, doctors and dentists it's illegal for them to share your information. And I'm always very careful what I tell my hairdressers. (laughs) Although I have to say hairdressers are the ones that I've worked with in my life are actually some of the most trustworthy people that I've ever been around. Thank you, GP. If you have your own question you want GP to answer, drop us a line at Goop on Instagram or Facebook. That's it for today's episode. If you have a chance, please rate and review. Hit subscribe to keep up with new episodes and pass it along to a friend. Thanks again for joining. I hope you'll come back next week for more. And in the meantime, you can check out goop.com slash the podcast.